This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. The High Street has always been at the heart of any UK town and city, but over the last decade its significance has declined. As society, technology and retail changes, so too do places and their identity. But how can this be managed? How do you harness the special qualities of a place so that it works for the people who work and live there? In today's podcast, we're joined by Dr Steve Millington from Manchester Metropolitan University to discuss high street regeneration and place management. We'll find out that changing local high streets involves much more than simply formal place rebranding. Rather, as geographers, understanding how people engage with town centres is essential to their success. Historically, how has place identity been shaped in towns and cities? For example, looking at the role of tourism, industry and heritage to kind of produce images and representations around a particular location. You know, you think about the functions of towns, like for example, Sheffield, you know, Sheffield United Football Club, they're called the Blades. Mm. Why is that? Because of the steel industry. And it's interesting because I... There's much steel left in Sheffield, but it's still known as a steel town, Manchester, a cotton town. So there's something about that, particularly around industry, but also you you think about tourism, you know, places like Chester or Bath and all. That long heritage of going back to Georgian times, Victorian times, Roman times, is kind of bounded into contemporary uh, identities, and I think for people who come from those towns, it can be you know, a source of civic pride, you know, a sense of collective. You know, there's a community there, even though you might live in a big city, that we're kind of bound by that that identity. But then that is also a challenge as well, you know, like that, you know, Manchester, or Sheffield, those industries have gone, which then, you know, over the seventies and eighties, produced images of dereliction, decline. So sometimes those images, if they're not current, you know, they, they kind of locate a town in the past or a place as declining and can be, become the basis of neg- negative stereotypes, which then can, your civic pride and identity begins to unravel a little bit unless that's challenged because stereotypes are difficult to, to dispel and can be quite pernicious. You then need to look at particular cases, I think, you know, I mean... Take a city like London, I mean, it's, what is its identity? It's multiple, contested and constantly changing. It's important, but it's also dynamic as well, I suppose. What's the difference between placemaking and place branding? I have a problem with both those terms. It's interesting, I was, doing some, I was, I was at an event with Anne Marcusen, who's written a lot about placemaking. We're kind of in an agreement that that term now means all things to all people. And it's very difficult to pin down, and, and it's. I'll explain a little bit why that's the case. But she uses this term place keeping, or, or we might use the term place gardening to think about. You know, because place making now has, has certain connotations. I mean, geographers have looked at it in different ways. You know, going back to the sixties, perhaps. You know, and, and you know, as a set of everyday practices and how people 
make places through through the places they walk or the way they transform their environment and in all sorts of different ways to customise a place, to tailor it to their own needs. And of course then, more recently, you, you've kind of had these expert groups use placemaking, like architects will use placemaking, planners will use placemaking, consultants, local government, they'll say they don't do regeneration anymore, they do placemaking, which is really regeneration or physical, they're, they're really meaning physical changes. And it's a bit of an issue when you've got you know property developers also saying they're placemakers uh, as well. So this is why I say it means all things to all people. Hence the term placekeeping, it's really about you know people are losing a sense of place, what are they losing? You know, you, you get in towns, you know, with, with you know, homogenised landscapes or cloned towns, undermining those kind of local inscriptions or local sources of local identity. And how do then people take those kind of non-places and customise them? And so it, it, we're losing sense of what the everydayness of that. So I, I do find that term problematical. And, I've, you know, I'd, I'd maybe suggest those other terms, place-keeping... So is that more because placemaking is associated with like creation, making something new, yeah, changing yeah. things, and placekeeping is a bit more about maintenance and just the everyday? Yeah, but that, but that doesn't necessarily mean keeping things the same. You know, everyday practice, you, you might walk to work using the same route every day, but you do improvise once you get to familiar, you, you begin to explore and the place becomes closer to you in terms of its richness and detail. I always use an example. It, it's it's like because you get these, you see these big architectural visions, CGI visions. We're going to remake this town, and but gone is uh, the park bench, and now as that as a symbol of the past. And that might might be the park bench where you've carved your initials or where you stole your first kiss. <laughs> so those kind of and you know when you think of it from top down those kind of minor micro-geographies don't mean much, but actually they mean a lot to, to when you've got an intimate knowledge. So we kind of, that's, I guess that's what we're kind of losing a sense of a little bit, that these kind of grand schemes, because we've been there in the 60s and 70s when we remade places on a massive scale by demolishing people's neighbourhoods, but also not only demolishing their houses where they might have been born, but also their school, their library, the swimming baths, the football pitch and everything that made up that community for that person you know, eradicated on a whole scale, remade. But then again, it, but so it's not about nostalgia, I think it's, it's you know, for, it's everyday reiteration and change. So, you know, so the places don't stand still, but for collective practice, we, communities remake the place and those changes might be incremental and you don't see them from day to day, but if you went away from, say, your hometown and went back ten years later, there'd be all sorts of changes. And you speak to your parents, and they probably say, "Oh, nothing's changed." But you see all these changes. The other term there, place branding, I also have a particular problem with, as well, uh, for a few reasons. You know, there's a theoretical reason: is a place a product? Can you? create a brand, you know, can you take a town, I don't know, off the top of my head, like Liverpool, and market and brand it like a can of Coke? Uh, probably not, um, because places are complex, they're multiple, they're contested, 
And whereas Coca-Cola might be able to control all the marketing and communication around their image of their brand, places don't have that control because there's people talk to each other, there's media, there's social media, there's newspapers. So there's multiple channels of communication which undermine any attempt to construct a set a single set of brand values. And I think the other challenge there, particularly in terms of practice and also in terms of not being too controversial, that place brand in literature and practice again has become something captured by a narrow range of practitioners who kind of almost got this kind of model or prescription. This is how you brand a place. Insert place name here. Do this, this and this. And hey presto, you've changed, the, you've rebranded the place. And of course it never works. <laughs> it never ever works because of all this complexity of multiple channels of communication. And of course people resist those. If you, someone said to you, oh we're going to rebrand. So it's, it's said to, like in Liverpool capital culture, yeah we're going to rebrand Liverpool as a centre of creativity. Of course everyone moaned about it and it was contested. You know, arguably in a very positive way in one sense, but, but it, people react, they see through branding quite quickly if they don't subscribe to the brand values. You know what you get when you buy a can of Coke. You don't necessarily know what you're going to get when you consume a place. So there's that whole relation. Can you take a business model and apply it in that context a little bit, but don't expect too much. Do you have any examples of kind of some of the tensions that have been experienced then between different people who appreciate place and live in a place and try to brand a place and make a place? Because obviously part of the research we've been doing on high streets, we've been working directly with local partnerships, you know, about 10 towns in the first project. And we're now building relationships with other places, and we've you know, so we're actually going down, we're actually speaking to people, you know, at like local authority level, but then going down into specific neighbourhoods and trying to pull together broad ranges of stakeholder groups and very broad, I can't name places because no, I'll get into trouble, <laughs> but, but you know, the kind of problems we've encountered, like for example, everyone blames the council, you know, so there's often antagonism, as soon as the council gets involved, they're to blame, there's a lot of tension there, and of course, councils don't have any power, they don't have led to, you know, much statutory power anymore, they don't have much budget. They can't control the private sector. All the shops are shut down. It's got nothing to do with the council. You know, in my community, someone was blaming the council for the post office changing. Of course, the post office has been privatised <laughs> and never had anything to do with the council. And they legally can't do anything to open or close the shop. They're private things. Mm-hmm. So there's a set of tensions there. And overcoming that, and obviously, often when we go into places, they've been working in a particular way for a long time. It's like a culture of practice which can be, you know, not open to change. There's certain dominant people, you know, they're the, the main voices of that town. So what we've tried to do, and we, we work very carefully on the process of negotiation, because we wanted towns who wanted to, to be fully on board with the project, not just to cash, get cachet out of it. So we identify what we call place champions, these are often local people. They could be local government, they could be private sector, like a shop owner or a property owner, or it could be a voluntary, someone from the voluntary sector. Uh, but someone just cares about that place who wants to galvanise it, change it, and those are the, we've got to find those people 
and then they understand place as complex and understand that, yeah, well, we need to get a representative of younger people into this meeting because they've never been included in the traditional voices of you know, the channels of representation. But there's no standard mix. I mean, this is some of the problems with the geography literature is, is that there's, you know, there's public-private partnerships and they, they all, they're all the same everywhere. Well, that's not the case. The mix of stakeholders are different. Their intentions are different. We've encountered you know, private property owners who don't care about profit. They just want to see the high street regenerated, not to make money out of it, but to actually because they want the town to recover. So their, their kind of motivations can be multiple. People are complex, but the mix is different anywhere, everywhere, I suppose. You've mentioned there the research that you've done with these various stakeholders. Could you tell me a bit more about the wider project that that's feeding into? There were basically two, two projects. Uh, one was uh, Economic Social Research Council projects, which was a one-year project where we kind of set up the groundwork for the next stage. And that was a more academic piece of work. And if people want to download the papers, they're all open source and free to access. And we've just published a special issue, five papers explaining all that. But basically what we intended to do was set, is to get places, to work with places, to make them... And this might, might, doesn't seem like rocket science, but it's really difficult to make, get them to make evidence-based decisions. So to bring our academic expertise into local centres... So, but not to tell them what to do. It's to give them some tools and knowledge and say, look, you know, this is the scenario. This is how your town is performing. We've done the analysis. You now need to come up with some decisions about what will work. We kind of treat, 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 treat them like students in a way. That they go, we ask them to go away, write an action plan, and we assess it, we mark it, and give, it, give them feedback saying this, well, actually, you should change this, do this, we advise doing this, this probably won't work. And it's that kind of, you know, it's, to, it's what we call engaged scholarship as a, as a model. Um, so it's not just about academics parachuting in, it's actually working in a positive way. But as I say, that, that led, led the groundwork for the second project, which is a much bigger project, it's a million-pound project, funded by um, Innovate, the government's fund, innovation funding, and it's a big partnership, 17 partners. I can't name them all off the top of my head, but the key partner is the Retail Intelligence Specialist Springboard, which, if you've not heard of them, most people will know of them because of the news. Because every month uh, you see these figures on the news, footfall has gone up, gone down, they're the body that collects the data. However, they have a problem, like, you know, towns subscribe to that data and they don't do anything with it. So we've been doing that analysis, helping towns understand how, how people use their centres on an annual cycle, monthly, weekly, daily. And this data is by the hour. If you ask me, you know, how many people were in Cardiff City Centre on the 17th of March 2014, we could go to the spreadsheet and tell you, yeah, at three o'clock there was this count, four o'clock there was this count. So it's that level of data, it's a big data set. So we've tried to make sense of that. Um, and then once we've got data about how towns actually perform, we can then start a process. Well, what do you want to do next? Because what we've found is that the towns have been badly advised. Something I'll talk about in, I'll talk about in, the, in, the, in the RGS lecture is, is the retail hierarchy model is, is rubbish. <laughs> it, we need to just 
forget about that because that's not the reality of how people act. You know, it's a theoretical model based on assumptions, a normative set of assumptions. In reality, places are, are functioning in very different ways. And something we, we, we also revealed was that, you know, because you see in the news, High Street is dead and it makes the assumption all High Streets are declining. That's not the case. If you come to the South East, everywhere's doing really well. Mm-hmm. If you go to the big cities like Manchester and Birmingham, lots of activity. It's certain towns, types of towns, which are, which are particularly struggling. What, what used to be, maybe in the 80s, quite important comparison shopping centres, now have lost that functionality because the retail industry has restructured and changed, and they haven't adapted to how people shop, behave, or move in and out of town centres. They haven't adapted to that at all. So that's where we're seeing the big struggles so it, there's a bit, there is a regional divide, but there are different types of towns with different types of problems, and that's where we kind of come in. Because we found that they've been badly advised, they've been told, you're performing like this type of town, and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, we're an important town. And actually, they're not as important, What's, but they are to the local people. But then they've made really bad investment decisions, really bad regeneration projects, which don't really work, haven't functioned properly, and it's cost millions and millions of pounds. And it's a frank, it, in a lot of places, it's just been a waste of time and money. And they perhaps could have done something differently, taken a different strategy, had they actually analysed the evidence in front of them. And that's basically what the project's doing. So what are some of those different strategies then that towns can take, thinking about diversifying place beyond retail and yeah. like the high street not being just about shops or shopkeepers, thinking about activities that happen there? Certainly what we're not saying, I mean, and we've been accused of this, is conflating retail centres with, with town centres. And I want to get that. We're not doing that. Um, but retail's a good proxy of performance so it's a measure of a town's attractiveness and it's an important economic sector I mean, almost 3 million people work in retail so it is important in those kind of structural terms but town centres are not just about retail they are important centres for the community it's a public space where people from all backgrounds can mix and the way people traditionally use centres is, is, is all sorts. They might go shopping, they might meet friends, they might go for something to eat, they might nip to the pub, put a bet on, use the post office, use a transport hub. It, it's, it's all these kind of linked trips, which... And there are a few places like that in, in towns. You know, they don't, you don't get that in the privatised space of a shopping mall. It, doesn't, it has similarities and mimics a town centre but isn't a town centre and doesn't have the issues around public access and all that. But if you take the retail away, all those services like libraries, museums, public transport, pubs, cafes, bookmakers, takeaways, their their sustainability is brought into question. So that you know, what sort then what would that leave us with? We'd leave us with centres with nothing in it. And that's the issue is what do we fill them with? Because all the, the, the our analysis and the broader trends suggest we don't need as much retail space. But what do we do with those empty shops is the big challenge going forward. Do we repurpose them? Do we turn them into offices? Uh, do we turn them into houses? Do we open them up to the community in some way? So those are kind of some of the challenges we're facing as we progress with the project and we work with other towns but you'd be really surprised 
how difficult it is to actually adapt private space because it's in private ownership. You need to work with the landowner. We've come across examples of you know empty shops which are being leased by a major retailer and who've never occupied that space. And which landlord is going to tear up a twenty-year contract? You know they're getting the money. What do they care? Is is kind of some of the problems around adapting. When you think the private sector would be flexible and adaptable, that's often a barrier to change. But then we look, you know, looking at other models of adaptability, flexible use of space, temporary activity, festivals, events are really important. We know that a good market is really good. Then there's more structural issues, and I think this kind of reflects decades of really bad planning. Like we've dispersed and decentralised our centres, we've surrounded them with ring roads. Maybe a future for town centres is, as you see in the big cities like Manchester, you know, people want to live in the centre because they want to be near, they want to walk to work or walk to facilities. But unless your town centre has those facilities and is walkable and has sufficient accommodation to suit those kind of people. It's going to be difficult, but but that would be an ideal strategy. Is to go back to some basics in terms of neighbourhood planning. It's like smaller, compact, dense, livable, walkable centres. It's probably the future for a lot of towns which where 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 they're struggling to fill their shops, but they need to start adapting now. Of course, but then there's no prescribed model because you know people the demographic profile of the country is shifting we're becoming older so it's not just about responding to what's happening now it's about thinking well actually in 30 years time 70% of people live in our town are going to be over 60 do we really want lots of nightclubs I don't know I mean maybe for me I don't know um but then, you know, but then there's things missing. You know, if you wanted to live, you know, you live, at the, you live in the centre of London, you've got lots of shops, you've also got lots of green space, you've got schools, nurseries, doctors. Those are kind of absent. You know, you, you, you couldn't bring a family up in, the, in, in many of the city centres or town centres because they don't have those facilities. And it's, there's a big challenge there, you know, city centre living is seen as a kind of panacea, but actually people have a very short life cycle there. They come in young professional who can afford it mm. but then three years later they have a child and they move out again and so that's another challenge and again affordable properties as well how you build, embed that into these kind of models of development and it's really difficult as we found again talking to practitioners to build in things like independent retail and diversity mm. they, they, they can't get the funding to build new property unless they've got cost and marks and sparks in the, in the ground floor, so that's a big challenge, um, you know, a structural challenge. Do you have any good case studies or examples of places that are really vibrant? That, you know, they've had research done, they've kind of had the opportunities to diversify, like a town centre from zero to hero. Well, not from necessarily zero to hero, and sometimes I can't mention for legal reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I t- two towns which I'm sure who we've worked with who wouldn't mind me talking about them one is Ballymena in Northern Ireland the other one's Altringham in, in South West Manchester mm-hmm. uh, is a great example it's quite a quite a vibrant market town about 20 miles west south you know, of Belfast and but they've gone through the kind of problems high vacancy rates how can we adapt to change yeah. 
uh, they'd written an action plan which was all about developing nighttime economy. Mm-hmm. And then we showed them their, their footfall profiles. Now, it's often saying, you know, the academics talk about nighttime economy, consultants say extend the nighttime economy. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but how do you get, if you open all your shops and cafes later, how do people get home after six mm-hmm. o'clock? Is that a challenge in Balamina? To, to, you know, develop a nighttime economy, then there's, they need to liaise with all the public transport providers to change their timetables, and sometimes that's not possible. Shop, it might seem an easy thing to say, get your shops to open later. Well, okay, that might be possible if you've got an independent retailer. If it's Boots or a shopping centre, uh, you know, a shopping centre is a great example. They might have more, many retailers in there. They've all done budgets for the year. If they open later, that means they're going to take extra staff on, extra stock on. So they can, they will be able to open later in about eighteen months' time. It's not that quick. It's not just a question. What was interesting about Balamina, they've been told they were failing, but actually the the footfall profile suggested they were a very successful comparison town. And they should adapt and change their investment strategy and place marketing strategy accordingly. And they did that very thing. And they're doing okay. Altrincham's a really good example. If you, if you don't know Altrincham, you, you might wonder why it's struggling. It's actually, its catchment is, is one of the wealthiest suburbs of Greater Manchester. It's where the footballers live. But it was really affected by the Trafford Centre. So the kind of mobile ABC shoppers will go to the Trafford Centre and Altrincham was one of many town centres around Great Manchester affected by that retail out-town development. And structurally they, they had problems adapting to that. They had a big department store which closed, but physically was a big barrier. And at one point they had a 20% vacancy rate there, one of the highest in, 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 in conurbation. So we've been working with them for a long time, and I, I'm sure they won't mind me telling me this, but it, they're a tip, they built this new transport interchange, and Altrincham is very well connected, rail, bus, metro, and tram interchange, put a lot of investment into it. But that's where the footfall is now in Altrincham. It's not down the high street, it's actually the transport interchange. Their peak footfall pattern was like seven till nine in the morning, mm. and five till seven in the evening. And we asked, when did your shops open? Nine till five. Well, there's no one there. <laughs> and then there's an issue about the type of shops in the centre there, which were providing... So people getting off the tram at night, you know, carrying Sainsbury's bags with bags of milk in because they couldn't buy them when they got back. So it's that kind of... It's not rocket science, and I'm not a business person, but that. But it is difficult to adapt and change. But they put in, the, the private developer there put in a fantastic project, which I've got to mention, which is Altrincham Market. Many towns have a covered market, but the market's no longer there. And many towns have either demolished these things, or they've turned them into flats, mm-hmm. or they've turned them into some generic shopping mall, and all characters gone. In Altrincham, they've kept the structure, and it's filled it, with uh, small food retail outlets. Mm-hmm. It's become a experience, somewhere people were... It's, it's actually given what Altrincham needed, a, te- a social space where people can meet, and that's a very traditional function. That is what people want, wanted. And the success of that development now, you know, 
it's great for us, it validates our analysis. That was that was the kind of development we suggested might work. I'm not taking credit for that. But this guy now is he wants to replicate that model in elsewhere. Mm. And I think that's something people might learn from. Broadly then, do you think geographers are really well equipped to deal with all these issues that you've mentioned? Yeah, I think I think that, that what's really interesting, right, and this is something that does get me back up at the moment, is no matter who I talk to in whatever discipline, I do work with business school, sociology, in our English department, uh, and then you speak to uh, transport providers, local authorities, planners, consultants, and they're all using the same term, place. And part of me thinks, well, geographers have been doing that for about 150 years. It's one of our core concepts. It's one group of academics or, you know, or teachers or, or whatever who knows something about place, it's geographers. So it's kind of, a bit of me is like, get off my ground or get out of my place kind of thing. But I'm kind of pleased that people are using that term because people have come to say like retail strategies that not worked because retail can't be managed unless it's, it's managed in, in a kind of mosaic of things which make up a place that you, you can't have like, it's, it's a place, what we call a place management issue. You can't have a load of shops if there's no road to get to them. What kind of town would it be if there was no lighting? Uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. So these things have to be managed holistically, and place is a term which captures the holistic nature of place. It's multiple needs and complexities. So theoretically, I think, mean, you know, and geographers can, can provide a lot there and also get, you know, challenge. I think it brings a level of criticality to it, you know, place, places aren't kind of, you know, bound by a boundary, they're, they're multi-scalar, you know, what goes on globally affects localities and there's that kind of local global tension. It's, it's understanding that, you know, net, you know places as, as composites of networks, interscalar flows, mobilities. I think, you know, there's few disciplines which kind of get that, and we've always kind of done it. There's some really practical skills geographers can bring as well, you know, in terms of understanding place-based data, analytics, and also, obviously, the GIS and spatial modelling. I think are really important tools. I think the challenge is, 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 you know, I'd love to see community groups being equipped with some geographical analysis skills so they can challenge this planning decisions around green belts or development. Maybe that's a, jo- a job for, for the geography community. It's, it's about, you know, getting out of the ivory tower and, and working more directly with communities to empower them with these really powerful you know, not just analytical tools, but conceptual tools as well, you know, to, so they can speak the same language as, as, the, as the technocrats and make places for themselves. So that's the, that's the geography's role going forward, maybe. For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at RGS underscore IBG schools for the latest updates. This recording was supported by the Global Learning Programme. For more resources to encourage pupils understanding of global issues and development, visit www.glp.globaldimension.org.uk. Thanks for listening.